the politics of sound with Ian Carnegie. Darling, happy anniversary. Another year of love has gone by. Thank you. Well, happy anniversary, everyone. The Politics of Sound is one year old and we are celebrating in style with our special guest, former BBC political correspondent, Carol Walker. Now, this show was originally going to be presented in London as our first Politics of Sound live show, but never defeated, we spoke and recorded our interview remotely over the last week. Carol is one of the country's great broadcasters and I know you're going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is our anniversary edition of The Politics of Sound. Carol, welcome to The Politics of Sound. It's been a long time coming, this interview. You were going to be our special guest on the first Politics of Sound live in London, but of course the current situation meant it all had to be cancelled. How are you and where are you? We are all fine. I'm in London. Yeah, it's a great shame we can't do this in front of a live audience, but clearly that became impossible under the circumstances. And I just hope we can bring a little bit of amusement and distraction to a lot of people who I know are having a much, much tougher time than I am during this terrible crisis. And let's just pray that we get through it all and get out the other side of it. And um, yeah, I, I really just want to say very quickly that like many other people, I am just full of so much admiration and praise and support for those incredible NHS staff and other key workers on the front line who are doing such an amazing job. Well, not only are they doing an amazing job, but they've also seemed to bring the country together in an amazing way. If only one thing has come out of this, it's been the show of unity after all this division of the previous years. Absolutely. And I do hope that we'll come out of the other side of this with not just appreciation for what some of those key workers are doing, but also this continued sense of community, which I've been certainly very aware of in the last few days and weeks. I want to ask you about your own profession. You are a celebrated and, and highly prominent journalist. What do you see as the particular challenges to your profession at this time? And how has it affected your work in particular? Well, I think clearly on the immediate level, it is simply the logistics as a reporter, a correspondent, as a journalist. You always want to be there on the scene. You want to be talking to people uh, to really get a sense of what is going on. You want to be chatting, whether it's to your political contacts or to people who are affected by a particular story. And obviously, given the restrictions that we're facing, the need for social distancing, the need to be very, very cautious that as journalists we don't add to the problems those pace, face those create particular practical problems and we've already seen lots of reporters interviewing people at a huge distance with boom mics and so on and I take my hat off to everyone who's continuing to do that because I think it is important that we explain and convey what is going on I think the other challenge is getting the tone right nobody wants to have some sort of gotcha political interview at the moment. 
Nevertheless, there are important questions to be asked. And I think it is very important for journalists to continue to do their job of being clear about what is going on and being clear where the government may not live up to the promises that it has given. Um, Clearly, we are in incredibly difficult times. There is no modern government that has faced this sort of challenge and everybody understands that. And I think the challenge for journalists is to get that tone right whilst respecting the fact that things are not going to be perfect. There is no ideal way of dealing with a crisis that is killing so many people. But at the same time, just making sure that the journalists ask the questions that the public want answers to. Do you think that journalists in the main are getting that balance right? It is. We're clearly seeing journalists working at a distance, asking questions down the line rather than being there face to face. And I think that I would also say that I'm absolutely delighted to see this change of attitude in the government, whereby ministers are not only happy to talk to journalists to appear on programmes like the Today programme, which they had refused to do for a while, but also in those news conferences, not just answer the questions, but accept the follow-ups, accept the journalists' right to ask those questions and try whenever they can to give the best and the most honest answers that they can, given the circumstances. I want to take you back to your own background now, starting with your upbringing in Norfolk. I sense this was in some ways fairly idyllic. Is that so? It really was, Ian. And I had no background in journalism. Uh, My parents, I lived with my parents in rural Norfolk. I had two brothers. I had incredibly loving, supportive parents, a close family unit, um, a wonderful amount of freedom. One of the things that both my parents were amazing about, particularly when I look back on it now, is the amount of freedom which they allowed us as even quite young children. I was lucky enough to have ponies and horses. That was my passion. I really did have an incredibly lovely, warm, supportive family that stood by me. But I remember, for example, that uh, my journey to school from the age of about seven or eight involved cycling, uh, including a cycle ride across fields on a footpath to a train station, uh, a couple of stops along the line, and then a walk of a mile and a half or so the other end. And I remember it was all fine with my parents because we were doing it with an older girl who was in the year above us. So she must have been all of nine. And I think that sense of freedom and openness in that era in those environment and in those surroundings and with the parents that I had um, is something that I could only dream of um, for my own children today. Maybe the fact that we know so much more has made things and made people so much more fearful. Would you agree? 
I think clearly we are more aware of the dangers. I think also there were the particular circumstances where I was when I was growing up. I know it's very different from where we are at the moment in London. I know that families right across the land always go through these dilemmas as to at what age do you allow your children to walk to school on their own, um, getting the balance right between giving them sufficient freedom whilst ensuring that they remain safe. Uh, and those are dilemmas which I think all families face at various different stages as their children grow up. I was particularly lucky, I think, in the circumstances that I grew up with. But I do think that my parents had an amazing attitude. Um, we were certainly allowed to climb trees, which my friends weren't allowed to climb. And I used to go off for long rides with my friend on my pony. And of course, we didn't have mobile phones. Uh, we didn't have any way of staying in touch. I would be gone for maybe two or three hours up, up to the woods uh, and would then be able to come back. And my mum might say, where on earth have you been? You're late for tea. But that was about the extent of the trouble I got into on those sorts of ad adventures. At what sort of time in your life did you decide, I want to go to London, I want to break out of this and see something a little bit more metropolitan, maybe? I think when I was a teenager, I realised that in rural Norfolk, we were a little bit cut off from what was going on culturally in parts of the rest of the country. And uh, I started with uh, a couple of friends. We'd go on a Saturday on the train down to London just to wander down the King's Road and I got quite into various bits of fashion and music and those kinds of things and I think at that stage I grew quite frustrated with uh, the most exciting place I could go to was a, a club in Norwich where it was then a complete nightmare to get home again and uh, I got much more interested in that kind of metropolitan life and some of those cultural experiences, which uh, Norwich these days is a pretty cultural city, but um, I, at the time I felt uh, it was a bit boring. And frankly, I lived 16 miles away from it. So it wasn't um, in those terms uh, the most exciting place from in my eyes at the age of, I don't know, 15, 16. So you came to London, I think it's sometime in the 1980s, and you enrolled at the London College of Printing, where I think, if I understand right, you undertook an experimental radio course. Is that right? That's right. I was a pupil of a teacher who is legendary, who's called Fred Hunter, and an awful lot of very high-profile journalists, BBC managers, all kinds of people working in the media passed through Fred Hunter's tutorship. He sadly died in recent years, but he was an amazing guy. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time, to be quite honest. And I enrolled to do a course in magazine journalism and they decided to start as an experiment, a radio journalism course, and it sounded quite fun to me. So I switched on to that. And although it was a bit chaotic and we didn't necessarily have the sort of facilities that we see in many of our colleges and universities these days. He did get us lots of great work experience on lots of radio stations. Lots of local radio stations were just opening up at the time and it was 
an amazing uh, an amazing opportunity for me at the time and it led to me getting my first job which was at Radio City in Liverpool which was phenomenally exciting at the time goodness only knows how I got a job on this really quite a big and quite an exciting local radio station with virtually no experience whatsoever indeed and I wanted to to ask you you would have been working at this great radio station in Liverpool in the 1980s Liverpool was a a very politically engaged city. It always has been. You found yourself in the middle of that broadcasting. Did you feel that you got more politically engaged at that time? Yeah, Liverpool was an absolute hotbed of you know red socialism and tensions between the local government and the national government uh, margaret thatcher's government in westminster uh there was a lot of disruption there were bin strikes there were strikes at the uh car companies uh it was such a different experience from anything i'd been through um having grown up in rural norfolk having then been to college in london which i absolutely loved and thought it was the most exciting thing ever and I then found myself in Liverpool goodness knows how I got the job I knew absolutely nothing about the city in fact I knew so little about the city that I will tell a joke I will tell you a story about my experience which I now look back on with horror and shame I grew up in a household where football was not a thing nobody in my family was particularly interested in football or that kind of sport uh I'd been in Norfolk and in London I went to Liverpool amazingly I got this job I had one day to find a flat somewhere to live I was there with my dear mother bless her we saw a flat advertised I said that looks quite good let's um go and have a look we didn't have long we thought we'll take a taxi I said to the Liverpool taxi driver, uh, do you know this address? Uh, it's number 223 Anfield Road. And uh, I won't do the Scouse accent, but he said, oh, I think I can just about find that, love. And of course, it was right outside Anfield Football Ground. And the name didn't mean anything to me. Uh, I didn't actually live in that flat, <laughs> but it was an incredible place to work. It was fantastic as a journalist because... Everyone had a story to tell. Everyone wanted to talk to you. And I certainly learned a huge amount. This would have been the time of Militant, of Derek Hatton. Amazing times, I would have thought. That's right. Derek Hatton... uh, challenging Margaret Thatcher, refusing to accept the Westminster budgets. And I think it was a time when I began to be politically aware, although it was many years later before I started working on politics, because I then came to London. I worked initially on local radio in London. I went back to um, Norfolk, where I worked as a regional television journalist, which at the time I found hugely frustrating. I hated it after Liverpool and and London, and then eventually um, got a job on uh, national TV in London, uh, where I first began covering some big stories. Was there a moment for you about this time that you would describe as your big breakthrough? 
possibly that move into the BBC, would you say? Certainly my move into the BBC at local radio in London, though it wasn't an easy place to work at the time. I mean, it is extraordinary when I look back and remember a newsroom filled with smoke where people were smoking and had ashtrays by their typewriters. My goodness. How did we ever work in that sort of environment? Absolutely ghastly. We all used to go to the pub at lunchtime before leaving in time to read the two o'clock summary without making a single mistake. That was a real skill test. And I have to say it was there was a lot of sexism when I look back. I remember the output editor of one of the programmes I used to work on would say to myself and uh, a couple of the other young female reporters, oh, come here and sit on my lap while we discuss the running orders and we'll decide what assignment we're going to give you. And I told him in no uncertain terms to, um, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to do that. And... Um, and it rebounded on me. I was given the crap assignments for months and months to come. In fact, until I left the radio station because I couldn't stand it any longer. And it never occurred to me to ever say anything about it because that was the era of the times. He was much more important than I was. I was a junior reporter. There was no way that I thought that my complaints would be taken seriously. And I think that if I had made a complaint, frankly, people would have laughed. Do you think, as a woman, trying to make a way in this particular profession, that you had to battle harder than a man maybe would have had to do? It never occurred to me. Even after that incident, it never occurred to me. I just thought that's how things were. It was like when you went to the pub and wandering hands were a common problem and you used to have to give people a good thwack and tell them to behave themselves and I just accepted that as a part of the era that I was growing up in but uh, after a brief stint back up in Norfolk learning how to work in TV I came to London and there I really was given opportunities you were asking me about my lucky break I lucky it was a, a terrible terrible circumstances but I remember the Manchester plane crash in 1985 and I was sent to cover it and uh, there was desperate loss of life. I arrived there on the scene. We were given a chance to get close to the barriers where the wreckage was to, to shoot some pictures. And I think things were perhaps organised not quite as strictly as they would be these days. And Margaret Thatcher had arrived, Prime Minister at the time, to come and see what had happened, to talk to the emergency services. And so my task was to doorstep the Prime Minister. And it was um, both ghastly situation, uh, terrifying to interview Margaret Thatcher, who glared at me with piercing eyes and uh, told me that we should just give thanks to the work of the amazing emergency services and promising to get to the bottom of what had caused the crash. But uh, it was for me, I think as journalists, we all know that sometimes our break, big breaks come at moments of real tragedy and disaster for other people. And that was my introduction into that. Of all the people that you have interviewed over the years, and there have been so many, Margaret Thatcher clearly has left an indelible print with you, as she did with so many journalists. 
What other guests can you recall that was possibly rather scary at the time? I don't think necessarily scary, because I think what you're thinking about in those circumstances is getting it right in terms of the job that you're trying to do. You're always thinking, what is the question that I should be asking? What has that person just said that I need to pick them up on? But I think one of the things that I was really struck by is meeting Tony Blair quite early in his career. I I moved from, I did quite a lot of international reporting, and then I came to Westminster in the final year or so of John Major's leadership. So that would have been 1996. Tony Blair had been opposition leader for a couple of years. I covered Tony Blair's general election campaign in 1997. People look at Tony Blair now through the prism of those 10 years in power, through the prism of the Iraq war and so on. And I think what I'm struck by really is just the change, the journey that a politician like that goes through. And I remember when I first met Tony Blair, this very um, brilliant communicator, bright, uh, he did appear to offer a fresh new uh, approach to politics. That's why he won that phenomenal landslide in 1997. I covered that general election campaign with Tony Blair and the next two and the changes that you saw in the prime minister uh, as he went through the experience of governing, obviously the huge controversy over the Iraq war, the huge controversy over spin, over sleaze, over manipulation and so on, and the changes and the pressures that are etched on a politician serving at that level in our politics, I think, are something that really, really struck me. And we forget, of course, that the Conservative government that he replaced or Labour replaced in 1997 were falling foul of the very same things. They were allegations of sleaze, cronyism, all sorts of other things. Yeah, that's right. Don't let's forget that John Major's government, which was uh, teetering effectively without a majority, there were huge rebellions over Europe. It had been hit by allegations of sleaze, endless allegations of misbehaviour against senior Conservative figures. The Conservatives have been in power for a very long time. And that 1997 election was a watershed moment. As I say, I know people now look back at the Blair era through a ver- through very different eyes, um, but it was an extraordinary election campaign where we went around the country. Tony Blair used to step off the bus and he would wave to the crowds up on the balcony with his hand stretched up, a bit like uh, J.F. Kennedy or Mick Jagger waving to the crowds at the concert. Now, frequently, we would be somewhere like Milton Keynes High Street, where there were no crowds and no balconies whatsoever, but the pictures looked fantastic. He'd arrived to a little knot of uh, people waving New Labour flags. He'd give the same little stump speech, and then we'd up sticks and go on to the next place. But, but this mood in the country that you detected as you went around was also absolutely fascinating.
Your career has taken you to areas of great conflict around the world, including Somalia, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, Bosnia. How does one mentally prepare for such an assignment and cope with the day-to-day experience on the ground in such a place? Very often it would be literally a phone call in the middle of the night, in the early hours of the morning, this and and the other has happened. Can you get there? Can you go? Or can you go tomorrow to replace somebody who uh, needs a break and we need somebody to fill in there? And I think that very often it was just trying to be nimble on your feet and trying to just get to the story, just trying to get to the front line in the broadest sense, trying to get to the people who were being affected by what was going on. I have to say, I look back and the BBC these days and recent trips, more recent trips that I did with prime ministers and so on, we would have um, compulsory hostile environment training courses, which were very good. We would have flak jackets, we would have protective equipment. Most of the time when I was going into genuinely dangerous zones, we had absolutely none of that. Um, The only thing I do remember is having a little bit of training in um, chemical combat before I went out to cover the first Gulf War. How can you train for something like that? Well, it was laid on by the military and I then um, was dispatched initially to Jordan. Then I went to Tel Aviv where people, I'm sure it will be before the era that many people can recall, but during the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein was lobbing uh, Scud missiles into Israel. There was a lot of fear and worry at the time that some of those might contain chemical weapons. Now, of course, after the after the Iraq War, after the second Gulf War, we know that he, by that stage, he'd got rid of his chemical weapons. Uh, it wasn't long after uh, the first Gulf War that, in fact, he did use chemical weapons on some of his own people and so on. So it was a genuine fear at the time. And I will never forget being, I'd literally just arrived in the country. I was in Jerusalem. I'd never been there before. Uh, the sirens went off and they said, well, you better get to Tel Aviv. And I remember setting out down this road at maximum speed and the road the other way was absolutely jammed with traffic with local people trying to get out of Tel Aviv and we were heading in the opposite direction and and we were trying to get the chemical weapon suits on while travelling along this road. Uh, it, it was... Um, It was a a very difficult circumstance, but also a surreal one. We stayed right on the seafront in Tel Aviv, essentially just waiting for the sirens to go off. And as soon as the sirens would go off, um, we would put on the chemical warfare suits and go to wherever the latest Scud missile had landed. And fortunately, we got through this unscathed. Um, I then subsequently went into Kuwait, driving past the blazing oil fields um, into Kuwait, which was in a pretty shocking, devastated state. Um, A day or so after the Allies had gone in and liberated the city. How do you keep positive? How do you cope with the fear of being in a situation like that? I think you just focus on what you're doing. I think I was all I would be thinking about was how can we get there, get these pictures safely, 
try to find somebody to speak to us, then try to get the footage back, try to put my piece together in time to catch the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock or the nine o'clock news as it was in those days. I would literally just be focused moment by moment almost on the deadlines and getting the story done. And I think it was not until afterwards, often even on your way actually home from a trip, that you would suddenly take a step back and it would hit you perhaps later. I remember coming back from one trip and uh, a car backfiring and literally jumping out of my skin because I'd come from a war zone where there'd been artillery fire and I think it's only when you go through that that you realise the sort of stress that you've been under. At the time that you're there, I think my way of coping, everyone will have different ways of coping, was simply to focus on the job I was doing as a journalist. I'm thinking of the pressure that you put yourself under, you have put yourself under, which comes with the job. You're somebody who presents live on television, on the radio. This is a, a high wire act. You're somebody who has been to all of these war zones. Do you think there might be something of an adrenaline junkie in you? I guess there has to be a bit of a danger of that. I think these days, what I really like is communicating, broadcasting, this sense of being at the heart of things that are going on. Perhaps there is a little bit of that, but I think it's more about a real desire to be at the heart of important stuff that is going on. And I do count myself incredibly privileged that during my time at the BBC, I literally did have that front row seat on history unfolding. Yes, I know it's a cliche. It's probably one of those things that's on the BBC list of banned cliches. I'm not a staff member anymore. But occasions when you're there in Downing Street watching the changeover of power, uh, occasions when you go, for example, into a city like Kuwait, a place that's been liberated, where people are out on the street celebrating, a place where after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were literally Soviet-era statues tumbling and people out on the streets cheering. The just the extraordinary privilege you feel to be experiencing significant moments in our history and experiencing it at first hand. I think that is what has been the most important and the most amazing thing about the career that I've, I'm lucky enough to have enjoyed. I think you seem to have an appreciation and a sense of the dramatic. Were you someone who enjoyed presenting, public speaking, acting in your life, maybe at school or beyond that? Yeah, I loved absolutely all of that. <laughs> I think that's the one thing I'd have done if I wasn't a journalist. I'd You'd have, have gone into acting? Definitely, I would have gone into acting. And what about your musical background? Did you play instruments? I played the piano very badly. Um, I relearned um, 
six or seven years ago, worked through my grades. I've sadly lapsed. I think my daughter is now so brilliant and such an amazing musician. I feel I can't compete. Uh, but I loved music. I've always listened to music. I'm absolutely no expert on any type of music whatsoever. Uh, but I always enjoyed it. Uh, I used to go to a lot of concerts when I was young. I don't go so much now. But I still really enjoy music. I enjoy live music. Uh, I like to have music to unwind, to to chill out to these days, I think, which is perhaps a bit of a change from my taste in music when I was a bit younger. Well, we're going to find out much more about your taste in music right now because you're going to get the wonderful accolade of a visit to the legendary Politics of Sound record shop. I guess that you may have frequented a number of similar establishments in Norfolk over the years and maybe beyond. But what was extraordinary is that despite my frustration at being a teenager in Norfolk, there were two very small venues up on the Norfolk coast where quite a few big bands used to go, I think as a bit of a warm up before they went on national tours. And um, so I went to the Chroma Lynx Pavilion. Hello to anybody who's ever been there uh, to the uh, West Runton Pavilion, the, Cro- the Chroma Lynx and the West Runton Pavilion. And they were two venues Not, I would have to say, particularly large or glamorous venues. I'm sure the proprietors in those days won't mind me saying so. It's time for you to go into the politics of sound record shop. I do hope you enjoy it, Carol. Thank you. Can't wait. So, Carol, how was your visit to the record shop? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I found it very difficult indeed to try to think of three albums it's very hard to choose specific songs and I wanted to choose particular tracks and particular albums records I like to think of them as which means something to me it's been great and it's been great to go back and listen to some of that stuff well you've come out with three really cool and very wonderful albums of which the first has a particularly iconic cover in lurid pink yellow and black and of course it is the very wonderful what never mind the bollocks by the sex pistols nineteen seventy seven release on the Virgin label. I think most people can remember where they were when they first heard this album, or at least the band. What are your recollections of first hearing the Sex Pistols? Well look, I don't think I can possibly pretend to have been some disaffected youth gripped by this sense of terrible rebellion when I told you about such an idyllic childhood which I enjoyed. But I think what I loved about it was it was so anarchic. Um, It was just such a different sound and such a different phenomenon that everything that was around me at the time when I was feeling a bit frustrated with my life in rural Norfolk. um, The Sex Pistols, rather different from the sorts of music I would have enjoyed at pony club discos and I just couldn't wait for it and I just loved this sense of rebellion of doing something different and uh, on Christmas Eve in 1977 the Sex Pistols played at the Chroma Links 
and if you can imagine this essentially it's about the size of a large-ish village hall absolutely crammed absolutely sweltering hot people crammed down at the front the music was frankly the most appalling racket they were all shouting and swearing and spitting my god we wouldn't go anywhere near it in the current environment but at the time it was incredibly exciting it was a great thing to be a part of and I think I just liked the Sex Pistols really on a kind of cultural level I kind of enjoyed being a part of this rather different new cultural wave as I say I really couldn't claim to be a part of this disaffected youth that the Sex Pistols were supposedly giving a voice to um, but I enjoyed the clothes I enjoyed dressing up I enjoyed ridiculous walking through I enjoyed looking ridiculous walking through the centre of the very small rather rural town where we live and everybody looking at me and, and tutting under their breath. Well, I would have thought it would have caused a fair amount of consternation. In fact, the title and the cover alone caused much consternation with the police apparently raiding Virgin record shops all over the country and threatening prosecution if they continue to display the record in their windows. The, I think the crazy thing about it and the, the interesting thing about it is if an album like this was released now it would have little to no shock effect. But at the time, for something like this to land in the mainstream was absolutely amazing. Yes, absolutely. It was very different from all those 70s sugary pop bands. And I think that's why I quite liked it. I just liked something that was a bit different. And as I mentioned, we used to go down to the King's Road and just dress up for the occasion and see what people were wearing and buy a few little tiny snippets and play at being a part of it, I think. Well, the gig at the Chroma Lynx Pavilion on Christmas Eve 1977 has gone down into something of legend. An article appeared fairly recently with one of the attendees calling it a life-changing experience. And the gig itself has been actually commemorated with a blue plaque, I saw. That's amazing. I had no idea. I can't claim that it changed my life fundamentally, uh, but I do count myself um, very proud and very lucky to have been at this amazing event, which at the time we just thought, oh, great, they're actually coming to Chroma. And uh, it was an event that we definitely had to be at. Now, your next album choice features an iconic portrait of the artist in question. But then again, nearly all of his album covers feature iconic imagery. Which album is it? Well, I've chosen Young Americans by David Bowie, but I could really have chosen 
many others from especially that earlier era, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane. It was quite difficult to choose, but I particularly enjoyed this album uh, with Young Americans, of course, fantastic song. It's got fame on it. John, I'm only dancing. Um, I I loved all of this. Um, David Bowie, again, I think I just loved what he brought to the music and to the culture. Um, I used to go uh, with good friends of mine to uh, the gay club in Norwich. I wasn't gay myself, but I just thought the gay club was so much more interesting than uh, the only other two discos that there were in Norwich at the time. And I loved that sense of androgyny, of dressing up, of creating different images, different personas. And the music was absolutely brilliant. And I saw David Bowie uh, three times, I think, during his career. But I certainly remember going to see him. And I think it was at Earl's Court during the Young Americans tour. And it was just the most phenomenally exciting gig we can ever go to, we could ever have gone to but he was also playing to your love of drama as well i mean drama and david bowie and music it's all mixed into this melting pot isn't it which i'm sure you would have loved absolutely he created this these new personas he was again somebody who was breaking through that 1970s pop era and doing something completely different. And I really admired that. And I think I'm showing my age here. But of course, it's worth just remembering that um, there was no live streamed music that you could have so you could hear it whenever you wanted to. I used to listen to the radio and it'd be fantastic if it came on. And then you had your records. And I think in those, that era in the 1970s, I only had about... 12 records in my collection because it was quite expensive to go out and buy them. Buying a record was a really big deal then, wasn't it? It really was. Buying a record was a big deal. And then seeing these people play live was absolutely incredible. It's interesting you've picked David Bowie's album, Young Americans, because it's been described as a transitional album for him an album he described himself as Plastic Soul, and it's sandwiched between the sort of theatrics of Diamond Dogs and all of the androgyny of Ziggy Stardust, etc. And then the other side, the pre-Berlin period set, Station to Station, which is why Young Americans is an interesting choice to be your particular favourite or the one you've come out of the shop with. Why do you think you've picked that particular record? I know exactly what you mean. It was a an interesting album. Perhaps it's not the one that hardcore Bowie fans would say was his greatest musical talent. I think I just enjoyed the music, frankly. I just loved all of that. And I used to dress up and make my hair a bit like David Bowie's and dress up a little bit like him. And I just enjoyed all of that side of it, I think. The drama, the just the sense that it was it was cool it was sophisticated i was probably less fond of diamond dogs but i loved the ziggy stardust stuff i loved station to station actually so as i say i could have chosen any one of several different bowie albums from around that era but i decided that these are the 
Gosh, it sounds really awful, but the, the tunes I still really like. Yeah, and maybe he had to make this album in order to then turn things around musically and proceed into that Berlin period in the fullness of time. Do you think that may be so? Yeah, I think that it's very difficult to know exactly what motivated Bowie because he was such an enigmatic character and we know that he did go through these extraordinary phases and these extraordinary different um, approaches to his music and of course the incredible sounds that he created just before uh, his death which was really quite a shock to me he he was somebody who endlessly recreated himself as we know he was somebody who at the time I just loved everything that he stood for and the fact that he refused to conform. He wasn't going to do what the big record companies wanted to do. He was going to make his own music at the right moment for him. And I just, I loved every, every, every phase of his career. So what is your last selection? I think it's something slightly different from the albums we've spoken about so far. Yeah, that's right. This is a very different sound and a very different album. The Girl from Ipanema, The Bossa Nova Years with Stan Getz from 1984. And this is just an album that I just love that sound. I love Latin music. Uh, I love anything with that kind of Latin mood to it. This is incredibly laid back. And uh, my husband shares my love of this kind of music and when we got married uh, we danced our first dance to the girl from Ipanema with I'm sure a, a total lack of the sort of style that anyone <laughs> who knows how you're supposed to do proper Latin dancing Tall and thin and young and lovely the girl from Ipanema goes walking and when she passes each one she passes Getz would seem to have been this obviously brilliant, highly driven character. A straight-A student at school who got turned on by the idea of music but instantly fell in love with the saxophone and was practising eight hours a day. There was no way this guy was going to be stopped, I feel. No, that's right. And I love the sound of the sax. I love the sound of the saxophone. Um, my daughter now plays the saxophone amongst other instruments. And I just love the sound of that. It just conjures up this mellow, laid-back mood. 
I would just urge anyone to get this album on whatever system they use to listen to their music, switch it on and allow that very different mood to wash over you because it has a kind of sunshine feel to it. It has that kind of open Latin, warm embrace to each and every one of those tracks. And I'm not a great expert on Latin music. I couldn't play the saxophone to save my life. But Did you ever try? Uh, no, I never, fortunately for our neighbours, I never tried to play the saxophone. I limited myself to playing the piano very badly indeed. Um, but I love the sound. Um, I love the music. Every single track on this is delightful and uplifting and conveys a kind of positive mood which I think all of us could do with at the moment. Did you also enjoy when he was collaborating with the vocalist Astrid Gilberto? Yeah, absolutely. Every single one, all of that kind of era, all of those sorts of sounds, um, great mood, great sounds, great vocals, great keyboards. I always find myself actually listening to the keyboards rather than to the sax almost so that I can hear what people are playing on the piano because um, in the hope that it will inspire me when I finish a current series of projects to get back to the keyboard, to get back doing my scales and to start playing again, however badly it may be. Um, But it it is a, a wonderful sound. It is a wonderful mellow mood it is the sort of music that you can enjoy anywhere anytime and when you do need to switch off from the rather uh, relentless and incredibly serious news that we're having at the time um, these are great sounds to enjoy in order to do that spoken about the music that you heard for the first time in your youth in some instances what professional advice would you now give to the young carol walker about how to set out on the path of journalism gosh that's a very difficult one indeed i think it would be just to continue with the persistence with the resilience don't let the setbacks get to you Don't let anybody tell you that you're not good enough, that you're not up to it. I bumped into a a journalist I used to know many years ago at Westminster the other day who said, I remember the first day I met you and we were on some big crowded doorstep doorstep for some big political 
scandal and you literally elbowed me aside and barged forward to make sure that your microphone was at the front of the scrum and you could hear the key words being spoken. And I think in journalism these days, you still need those sharp elbows. You still need that persistence. And I think that would be the advice I'd give to myself and that I would give to any young journalist setting out today. Uh, It's a tough career, but it's an incredibly rewarding career. Don't let people knock you back. Just keep plugging away. Just retain faith in yourself, persistence, hard work, doggedness, and stick at it. And if you really want to do it, then it, it can be an incredibly rewarding career. And you're writing a book or you're in the midst of writing a book at the moment, I think. Yep, that's right. I'm writing a book about the lobby at Westminster, uh, which is like a little club at the heart of Westminster, which all Westminster political journalists belong to. And they get regular briefings from the prime minister spokesman and they get access to the Houses of Parliament, which in normal times is absolutely crucial. It has a fascinating history. It is a fascinating part of the interface between the media and the politicians, and in particular Downing Street and the powers that be in number 10 at any one stage. I'm writing a book about that If I ever manage to get it done, it will be out by the end of the year. So watch this space. We will indeed. Carol, I'm so glad that we finally managed to get this interview together, albeit remotely. Thanks so much for being my guest on this anniversary edition of The Politics of Sound. Well, I'm absolutely honoured to have taken part and I just hope that a few people enjoy listening to it. The Politics of Sound. Well, that's it for the first anniversary edition of The Politics of Sound. My thanks, of course, to Carol Walker for being such an amazing guest. We'll be back on the 1st of June, where my guest will be the president and co-leader of the Liberal Democrats, Mark Pack. But we're going to play out today with a real treat. This is Storm, the wonderful new single released by Carol's daughter, Sophia Grant. Take care, keep safe, and we'll see you next month on the politics of sound. Wind is high and stormy tonight We can feel its magical light As the sea comes speaking to me Siren voices drift out of key Wind and sea mix thoughts in my brain
The politics of sound. <laughs>